Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Here's a riddle for you. A group of women, uh, anonymous women, who take the names of dead women artists as pseudonyms appear in public wearing gorilla masks. Founded in New York City in 1985, published numerous books, spoken at hundreds of lectures. They produce posters, stickers, books, printed projects, performance pieces, communicate with the public. Their goal is to expose sexism and racism in politics, art world, film, and culture at large. The answer is, who are they? They're the Guerrilla Girls, spelled with the other spelling, um, as in Resistance Fighter. Although they do don gorilla masks, we have one of the Guerrilla Girls uh, on the line with us who has taken the name of the artist uh, Kathy Kolwitz. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. And we have with us in studio Assistant Professor of Art um, Jennifer Middleman, who is uh, teaches at... Uh, the uh, Kane College of the Arts, the art department there. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's actually Rachel Middleton. Rachel, sorry. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, I've given you another identity already, uh, but I shouldn't in, in this case. So, uh, Kathy Kolwitz, uh, tell us what, how the uh, the Gorilla Girls formed and, and why. Well, um, we were a group of, and are a group of artists. And we saw that things were getting a lot worse for women in the New York art world 28 years ago. There had been big gains in, uh, by the second wave feminists who did protests and things like that. And um, we realized that there had to be kind of new techniques for a new era where there, in the mid-'80s when there was a backlash against women. So we had the idea to put up a couple of posters on the streets of New York about the state of women artists in the... New York clubby art world, and it was not a pretty picture. But our idea that was different was that we would do a new kind of political art, not just point to something and says this and say this is bad, or do picket signs or whatever, um, but instead to do these in-your-face posters, banners, street projects, actions that twisted an issue around and presented it in a way that hadn't been seen before. So um, a small group of us met um, and named ourselves the Gorilla Girls and passed the hat around, and we put up the first few posters, and it caused all hell to break loose in the New York art world. So successful from your point of view? From the very beginning, it was Mm -hmm. successful. It really annoyed the people who we were uh, damning as being discriminatory. And remember, we used facts, humor, outrageous visuals. It was really a a different way of um, approaching these issues. Our goal has always been to try to change people's minds using facts and humor, not just speak to the already converted. I've seen that also you uh, you hand out uh, what you might call ironic awards, backhanded <laughs> We've awards. Done that. We've done that a few times, and actually we're, we're preparing this um, exhibition that's going to be in Bilbao, Spain next month, and we've been looking at a lot of those little projects that we did that we really haven't had time to look at for a long time, and they're just hysterical. We would write crazy letters, give awards, uh, satirical awards for uh, to, for, to um, you know, powerful people in the art world for being absolutely ridiculous in their treatment of women artists and artists of color, etc. So uh, you you saw backlash in the 1980s. Progress made earlier. We'll talk about that a little later on with Professor Middleman here. But you, you saw backlash against women artists. Yeah, we did. There had really been some gains. Remember, the the statistics in the art world are still pretty terrible. It's a rare museum, even of contemporary art, that has 30% women um, in its collection. Most have, you know, under 15. But at that time, it was more like if you looked at the like one-person shows at the Museum of Modern Art in 1986 or something, it was like zero, 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 zero. You know, it was years of zero, zero, zero. So there was a real, you know, there was, uncon- there was conscious prejudice, and there was also unconscious prejudice against women and against artists of color. One of these awards are, are you pointed out, it was an art critic, I, I can't remember his name. He described this artist as uh, Mrs. and uh, her, her husband's name. Uh, they'd been divorced for several years. You you called him out on that. I guess these are some examples. Yeah, I mean, women are always seen, you know, we're always seen in relation to men. And by the way, things are much better in the art world now, at least um, at the entry level, but there's still a long way to go. So mm. we can't put our masks away yet. And then, of course, there's Hollywood. It's even worse than the art world. 
So you, you work with Hollywood as well? Mm-hmm, yeah, we do billboards, you know, right next to the Academy Awards. And a lot of we've worked with groups of film directors doing sticker campaigns that went up at Sundance and at the Oscars, things like that. So uh, this first event, you put posters up 1985. Were you wearing gorilla masks or did this come later? No, no, we didn't have masks at all. We had decided to be anonymous. And at that time, honestly, you know, you never know how life will work out. That's all I can say is one of the founders, you know, and I've committed so much to this and I love it so much. And um, But you never know what's going to happen. So in the beginning, we, it was really self-serving. We decided to be anonymous to protect our careers. Some of us had them, some of us didn't in the art world. But we were afraid because there was so much hostility toward toward um, women, toward toward feminism at that point in the art world. No one wanted to hear about it. Oh, a bunch of women complaining. Shut up, you know. So we decided to be anonymous to kind of protect ourselves. But we all immediately found that the anonymity was fantastic because it kept the focus on the issues, not on who we might be. You couldn't say oh, she's in it, I hate her work, well, I'm not going to listen to what she has to say. It just was something, the group was more important than the individual, which is still the case today. It's not about individuals. It's about the work of this um, incredible entity, um, the Guerrilla Girls. Okay, so then we put these posters up. Everyone wants to talk to us. The press wants to talk to us. So what's a girl to do? So... One of us, we don't really remember exactly how it happened, but our story is that at a meeting, this really bad speller in the group early on was doodling writing Gorilla Girls, but she wrote Gorilla the Animal instead of Gorilla. And that was it. We had this idea, yeah, Gorilla Masks. In the very beginning, we wore ski masks. We wore all kinds of things. But it didn't take that long before the Gorilla Mask became our public identity which it still is to this day. So it's, it's good this is a phone interview. If you were in studio, would you be wearing your mask? With, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. You would have microphone problems. Yeah, I would. It's really hard to hear <laughs> when you have a, you know, to be, uh, have the microphone work correctly when you wear a gorilla mask. Mm. Now on stage, obviously you're wearing your gorilla masks. Um, by the way, we, we should announce that uh, uh, to the Gorilla Girls are coming to Utah State University on September uh, 10th, tomorrow, 5 p.m., in the Manon Kane Russell, Catherine Kane Wanless Performance Hall. That's 5 p.m. on the USU campus. Then on September 11th, Wednesday, 7 p.m., in the Lindquist Lecture Hall. And on September 12th, which is Thursday, 5 p.m. at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts in Salt Lake City. By the way, that uh, I think that sold out, that particular event. But uh, the other two you could uh, get into. They're free and open to the public, but uh, better get there early. Gorilla Girls, who were talking to one of them, they're a group of anonymous females who take the names of dead women artists as pseudonyms. They appear in public wearing gorilla masks. And their goal is to expose sexism and racism in politics, art world, film, and culture at large. We're talking with uh, the, uh, the the artist, the member of the Gorilla Group, who uh, takes the name Kathy Kolowitz. By the way, Kathy Kolowitz, tell us tell us about her. Well, you know, each of them picks a dead woman artist who means something um, to them, and each one of us has a different reason for choosing. I pick Kathy Kolowitz. She was a German artist who lived from 1867 to 1945, and what I like about her, she may not be my it may not be my favorite work in the whole world, but she was an activist as well as an artist. She did lots of inexpensive prints that anyone could own, you know, instead of just expensive art that only the wealthy could afford. And um, I really relate to her. She was kind of like the Guerrilla Girls in her own way. And uh, other members of the group take the names Frida Kahlo, George O'Keefe, other women artists. Yeah, Alma Thomas, um, Rose... uh, Violette uh, Leduc, you know, Claude Cahoon, I mean, tons of, uh, we've kind of re-found uh, all of these artists, and when you take the name, you have to look them up and find out about them and stuff like that, and that's been great for everybody. Let's turn to Rachel Middleman, Assistant Professor of Art at Utah State University. Uh, understand uh, you specialize in modern contemporary art history, and uh, interesting, you have a book project, we'll get into this a little later, talking about uh, eroticism in art made by women in the 1960s. So this would predate what we've come to think is the start of the, the feminist movement. But I want to ask you first about the Guerrilla Girls. When did, when did you first encounter the Guerrilla Girls? What did, what did you think? Well, 
I experienced the immediately the impact of their posters. Um, that's how I first got to know them. Um, for example, one of their most famous ones is about the Met Museum. Um, and this poster reads, do women have to be naked to get into the Met Museum? It's a question. And then uh, the response is less than 15, fifth, sorry, less than 5% of the artists in the modern art sections are women, less than 5% of the artists. But 85% of the nudes are female. Mm. And this was done, this first um, survey was done in the 80s. Um, so what this poster is getting at is that traditionally women have been the models and men have been the artists. And feminist art historians before me have shown how there are structural inequalities in the art world that really hindered women from becoming professional artists or becoming so-called great artists. So it's really easy to feel intimidated by the art world, to be discriminated against, uh, dismissed by a critic simply saying your work isn't good enough or we don't represent women in our gallery because we haven't found any that are good enough. Or in my field, um, we couldn't find a female faculty member because they weren't as good as the men. Um, so this questioning of the issue of quality as presumed to be objective um, actually could be used to discriminate. So when I saw their poster, I feel like the statistics sort of don't allow you to dismiss uh, these issues just based on some idea of quality. When you see those numbers, you just can't deny that there is inequality there. And they do it in this fun, graphic way. Um, I think it's interesting because I was looking at the posters, this, this particular poster on the website, and they've redone it a few times. And the statistics are not getting better <laughs> from what I could see. Um, so I think it's important that they keep sending out this really bold message. And I think it encourages other people to really to speak up, um, even when they're intimidated by what the repercussions might be of making those claims against an institution like the Met Museum. Uh, so, Katja Kolowitz, the, the statistics don't seem to be getting better. Is that? Uh, yeah, we've been amazed. I mean, we go back about every 10 years and we count at the Met again. We count the number of naked um, bodies in the artworks versus the number of women artists and the number of male artists. And uh, the statistics are always about as low as um, Rachel cites. It's just incredible to us. We're always sure it will be totally different. Now, this is one museum, you know, one, one permanent collection that we're looking at. So I will say that there are people um, at institutions around the world who are really trying to change this. And it's happening very, very slowly, but it is slowly happening. For example, the Margener Musit in Sweden has a policy that you have to do everything you can for more women. The Tate Modern in Britain has increased its collection. You know, it's a contemporary collection, has increased its collection from, you know, practically nothing to 30% women. And But it takes people stepping up, you know, which is really what Rachel kind of mentioned, too. I mean, we love being a model for people to do their own crazy, creative kind of activism. And honestly, we, one of the most wonderful things about being a Gorilla Girl is we get letters. Well, we get a lot of hate mail, too, but we get letters from all sorts of people, every age, every ethnicity, all over the world, telling us, not just about art, you know, but telling us that our work has made them want to use us as a model for their own, you know, own in-your-face, you know, transgressive kind of effective activism. Mm. This idea of anonymity, of course, you, you do it for one purpose. Uh, I assume that uh, these barriers against women artists getting, getting a foothold is because historically men have been in positions of power to, to select who, uh, who goes where in, uh, in galleries and such. Um, I, I don't know. Is it, uh, maybe it would be helpful to, to have, you know, a, a blind selection, you know, the way they do selecting musicians for, for orchestras or where you don't know the, the, sec, the, well, the, the gender. Music, of, you know, we hear from lots of people in music and they do not feel that things are going that well. You know, there's been lawsuits in classical orchestras and other parts of music. We hear from people every day. I think it's so, you know, Rachel knows even more about this, but it's such... It's such a complex issue. We still have this idea that a genius 
a genius artist, springs from out of nowhere, and he creates this work that's never been seen before, which, you know, feminist uh, art historians who have changed the world of art history have proven over and over again that that's, in a way, ridiculous. It doesn't mean there aren't fantastic individual artists, but all artists are part of their own time. And, uh, you know, these stereotypes of what an artist is frequently exclude women and exclude people of color. Also, feminism hasn't been around for that long, and it's only in the last 100 years or 150 or so, even in the West, that women have been allowed to have autonomous lives, to um, have their own studios, own their own businesses. Before that, you know, some man in their life, you know, father husband, brother, whatever, um, had, to be, had to be the front. Women weren't allowed to go to art school. They weren't allowed to do practically anything. Even the famous Bauhaus, which we so admire, um, forgot. They didn't really want women students when they started it, but they forgot to exclude them. And all these women immediately signed up because it was you know, supposed to be revolutionary, a new kind of art education. And Walter Gropius said, we can't have them in painting so he made a special department of textiles for them. And some of these incredibly talented women went into textiles and transformed the entire world of textiles. But why weren't they allowed in painting? Hmm. Rachel Minow, I'm interested to follow up on, on this idea of um, there, maybe a set idea of, of who is an artist, who is a genius. And, and, and the, the women, I guess, and sometimes of maybe even still today don't fit that. That, that is true, and of course, this is also uh, very much intertwined with the market. Mm. Um, and so one of the things I love that the Gorilla Girls have continued to be anonymous because at this point you could see that maybe they could gain some publicity for themselves. It might help their careers as individual artists if we knew who they were. Um, but one of the big questions I think that feminist art asks is, is you know can we is there another model besides this artist genius model and one of the ways that feminists did that was by doing collaborative work and sometimes doing anonymous work um, and of course if you don't know who the artist is that's a lot harder to package and sell so I think the market is a big part of that at least in contemporary art in wanting to keep um, really stick to individual names that we can really latch on to and who can become famous and really become the, the blockbuster artists out there today. Mm. Yeah, it's Rachel, it's interesting. Um, we've been uh, doing a lot of work about the, the system of the art world, which most people don't know about. They don't realize really how exactly how it works in the United States and, and even around the world. And we found one really interesting statistic. I mean, the art market is more and more about branding. It's more and more influenced by very wealthy entrepreneurs um, who sit on the boards of museums, and they're used to getting their way, and they're asking for their way over the curators a lot of the time now. So the statistic, you know, it's kind of the play, the art market is the playground of the 1%. But what's interesting is that it's unregulated. There's insider trading. There's all kinds <laughs> of crazy things. And it has been described as the fourth largest black market in the world after drugs, guns, and diamonds. So that's what we're up against. Mm, the, the <laughs> Wild West kind of a mentality, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. that's right. If, if you just join us, we're talking with one of the Gorilla Girls. They're a group of uh, women who uh, are anonymous. They, in fact, on stage and uh, in other venues, they put on gorilla masks. They're called the Gorilla Girls, in the other sense of gorilla. And uh, they take the names of dead women artists as pseudonyms. Uh, they were founded in New York City in 1985, published in numerous books, hundreds of lectures. Their work uh, seeks to expose sexism and racism in not only the art world, but politics, film, and culture at large. We're talking about that as well. They produce posters, stickers, books, printed projects. They do performance pieces, and they're coming to Utah to do some of those performance pieces. Uh, the first of those will be tomorrow, uh, tomorrow afternoon at 5 p.m. in the Performance Hall on the USU campus. Uh, it's uh, free and open to the public, but uh, the third event in Utah is uh, sold out, as it were. They did tickets, and, and, and so you can't get into that one. So get there early, 5 p.m., uh, the Performance Hall at the USU campus. That's tomorrow. 
On Wednesday, Weber State University at Lindquist Lecture Hall, 7 p.m. And I mentioned the sold-out performance. That's at Utah Museum of Fine Arts, just for informational purposes. And uh, the Gorilla Girl who joins us today has taken the pseudonym of uh, Kata Kolwitz. So she goes by that name uh, in public. We're going to take a brief break when we come back. Uh, I'll ask Kat Kolwitz what people can expect if they go to those performances, uh, what those performances look like, and we'll get into some of this this history, uh, some interesting work that uh, Professor uh, Rachel Middleman has been doing. Following the break. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we salute a city with a vibrant world music scene, New York. Musicians from Africa, South America, the Caribbean, and beyond all enrich the city's musical tapestry. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for World Music in New York, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting The Marvelous Wonderettes with seven other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org. We're talking about uh, women in art today. Uh, one of our the Gorilla Girls we're talking with, who takes the name of Kata Kolwitz, said that after some progress in the 60s and 70s, there's a backlash in the 1980s. That was uh, sort of the atmosphere in which the Gorilla Girls, a group of anonymous women who take the names of dead women artists as pseudonyms, appear in public wearing gorilla masks, was founded in 1985 New York City. They do performance art. They also do posters, stickers, books, printed projects. The goal is to expose sexism and racism in politics, the art world, film, and culture at large. And they're coming to Utah for a performance in the Performance Hall in Utah State University campus tomorrow afternoon at 5. Then they're at Weber State University on Wednesday at 7 p.m. in the Lindquist Lecture Hall. And there's a sold-out performance at Utah Museum of Fine Arts in Salt Lake City on Thursday. These events are free and open to the public. We're also joined in studio by uh, Rachel Mendelman, who's Assistant Professor of Art History at Utah State University. So, Kat Kolwitz, I understand that uh, this would not be your first appearance in Utah, your first visit to Utah. Apparently, the Gorilla Girls struck the Sundance Film Festival in 1990, I believe it was. Well, not just Sundance, Tom, although I want to talk about that. We were at Westminster College in Salt Lake City, or is it college or university? Sorry if I said that. Uh, college, thing. I believe, yeah. Yeah, in 2002, where we had 600 people come to see us. And, you know, people stayed afterwards. We talked to them. We met the most incredible people. So there's that as well. Then, yes, that's true. In 2000, oh, God, I think I want to say 2001, I think it was, or, uh, yeah, 2001, we um, stickered Sundance with all of these statistics about women directors. And, um, you know, the, the statistics on women directors are even worse than the art world. It's a rare year where of the top 200 films, there are more than 5, 6, 7 percent directed by women. So it's kind of the same situation. You know, it's a very, it's thought to be a very macho thing, being a director, and it's, it's just harder for women to, to get the gig. I mean, I remember being at a, some, some thing in Hollywood around that time, and um, I think the same individual might have said something different today, but it was some t- big TV producer, and he, you know, I was doing some Gorilla Girls event, and he said, you don't expect me to hire women, do you? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, that's how everything happens. You know, things don't happen just because they happen. Things happen because people fight for them, number one, and number two, people in power step up and change their uh, attitude and, and step up also and do something also. I want to go back in, in history a little bit to turn to Rachel Middleman here, who's done some work in, in this. Um, you, you have a book project, very interesting, fascinating topic of uh, erotic art by women artists. And this is the 1960s? Yes. What, what were these artists trying to do? Well, that is what I'm always asking them. Mm-hmm. How did you have the guts to do this? Why did you do this? Um, and it really has to do with um, the time period that they're in, of course, the 60s. Um, all sorts of demonstrations are happening. It's uh, The sexual revolution is happening. And so 
these women are thinking about how they can represent sexuality from their individual perspectives as women. And they're noticing that their experiences are not represented in the traditions of art in the nude and in erotic art or even in popular culture in things like pornography. So they're thinking about ways that aesthetically they can present their experience to a viewer as something different and claim it for themselves and claim a right to that expression because, of course, at this time it's even more taboo uh, for women to express sexuality. Um, So I'm looking at a group of artists who are doing this kind of work in different mediums uh, with different subject matter, and they later did become part of the feminist art movement. And in fact, um, a number of them got together and formed uh, their own group called the Fight Censorship Group, uh, which uh, was intended to raise awareness about women's sexual art, um, that it could be all sorts of different things. It could be about violence done to women. It could be about women's own experience of eroticism, that it was, you know, each had their own individual reason for wanting to do this. Um, but they did get together to try to get their work into museums um, and to get it accepted. And, you know, one of the arguments was, especially for the women who were using male bodies in their work. Um, You know, there are all these female nudes in museums. Why can't we put our male nudes into a museum? So they really raised a lot of questions um, like that. Uh, So some of the artists that I'm looking at are uh, people like Hannah Wilkie, who was a sculptor, uh, and she did a lot of really abstract work. She's really known for vaginal imagery in that sculpture, um, but it's also really abstract and very sensual, very tactile. Um, and so in that way, very different from some kind of figurative representation of you know, a sexual act or something like that that we would think of as traditional you know, pornography. Um, another artist is Anita Steckel. Uh, she unfortunately passed away recently, and I became executor of her estate. So I'm taking on this completely other role now, um, supporting women artists and their legacies. Uh, she did work uh, large-scale um, found photographs of New York City to which she extended the top of the skyscrapers with phallic symbols. Um, so really making, I think, also a bold statement about uh, who runs the town. Uh, at that time. So, and you've, you've talked to these artists. I have. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about what I do. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of artist interviews and interviews with the people that knew them. Um, you know, many of the first generation of feminist artists are still alive. They're still making work. They're still active. And there's just so much work to be done. Mm-hmm. What was the reaction in the 60s when they, when they first came out with this art? Well, yeah, that's interesting. Um, there was some negative reaction, definitely. Um, there was censorship. Um, there was self-censorship also in the sense of, um, like, uh, Hannah Wilkie, for example, talks about sort of having to downplay the subject matter of her work in order to keep her teaching job. Uh, so things like that um, definitely made it harder for them. And that's one of the reasons I like to ask them, you know, what, how did you have the guts to do this? Something that was going to make it more difficult for you, Mm. you know, and the response is usually that it's a kind of conviction that they had, that it was important, that they wanted to demand that right to self-expression. And also that because they're women, they weren't getting a lot of success in the art world anyway. They didn't have a lot of recognition and therefore didn't have that to risk. Mm. And later on, did they, did they feel like, progress was made, different reactions later on? I think so. I mean, they felt like a lot of progress was made, I think, at the beginning of the movement. Now I'm just thinking of uh, Anita Steckel in particular. I've talked to her about this. Then she felt that maybe in the 80s, later generations um, criticized her and some of the other uh, feminist artists for choosing um, to represent sexuality and the female body in their work. And so one of the big questions of feminist art, and I should say that from the beginning, no one has ever agreed what feminist art is. Mm-hmm. You know, But that's one of the great things about it. It's always been a conversation and a debate. So one of those debates has been, is it really possible to use the female body in art and not objectify it? 
So that's what they were. That's what they were trying to do. Yeah, but that was that was the goal. Yeah, Katja Kolwitz, uh, I wonder are there are there artists out there maybe from this period that were an inspiration for you and the other Gorilla Girls? Oh, definitely. But we have this policy of never talking about the work of individual artists, really, oh, unless okay. they're from long, long ago. Mm-hmm. So, but the answer is, of course. I mean, this was the generation. Uh, before us, and um, I can just say for myself, of course I was inspired by this. And I think they, you know, you can't, Rachel, another thing which you didn't mention, but they were inspired by the time they lived in also. I mean, this was a time of great protest. There was that what they called the sexual revolution going on in the in the 60s. You know, women had these groups where they... Um, investigated their bodies, you know, I mean, this was an environment, it it wasn't in the conservative art world, you know, which always uh, takes a lot longer to catch up, but, um, and they were totally gutsy, I mean, I agree with you completely, because this isn't what people wanted to see as art, Um, so, and they had, they, and these women also had a great sadness in their lives, because women artists, some women artists turned against them, and uh, women art historians turned against them. And unfortunately, you know, some like like Hannah Wilkie and Anita Steckel um, aren't with us anymore. But some of the others who were forgotten and really had hard feelings about this are now have now been rediscovered and are having an incredible resurgence that they are, you know, happy about, surprised about, and grateful for. And Rachel Middleman uh, uh, said also there you know there's there's arguments there's debates about what feminist art is. I'd like to pull back to to feminism. You and the Gorilla Girls, you're you're treating feminism. What what is feminism? <laughs> well, um, again, there are many feminisms. Different generations have different feminisms, uh, but feminism is um, believing that women should have the same rights as everybody else. And we think, you know, we are still shocked all the time. We think it's crazy that while most people believe in the tenets of feminism, you know, human rights, including education for women worldwide, reproductive rights, freedom from sexual abuse and exploitation, people believe in these ideas, but they don't call themselves feminists. And we think it's really important to remember feminists just doesn't get the respect it deserves. It's one of the great civil rights movements, human rights movements of our time, along with, you know, lesbian, gay, bi, and trans rights, civil rights, um, etc. And, you know, it's important to remember that whatever you, however you want to define it, you know, it's changed the world, it's changed human thought, it's given many women lives there great-grandmothers could never have imagined, and talking about the courage to do things, you know, as, as Rachel has been and, and I was a little bit, um, even the most repressive countries in the world have brave feminists, you know, speaking up at great cost or working quietly behind the scenes to affect change. So you do feel like progress is being made? I think it's two steps forward, one step back. There are many countries where women are still property and have no rights at all and are considered, you know, barely above, you know, the ground they walk on. But um, slowly the world does seem to be, you know, slouching toward more human rights for everyone. Certainly wish that it could go quicker, though. Mm -hmm. And the art world, you know, likes to think of itself as avant-garde, just to get back to that for a second. But often it's been derriere, behind. You know, it's really something that's behind. It's, uh, you know, it's market-driven, it's money-driven. There's a fantastic world of artists who put their whole lives into everything they do. And then there's a system that's basically... Uh, set up to try to let in as few as possible to increase their prices and make the rest feel like crap. Rachel Mendelman, do you, you see this as well? It's a, the, the system is very much based on selling art, right? Um, but yes. but maybe if anybody is sort of too avant-garde, then they're not going to fit the system, and they're going to have a problem. Um, and that, that probably describes a lot of women. Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, um, artists who are considered avant-garde, 
it really it has more to do with the backing, their financial backing, who their patrons are, um, how quickly they can be absorbed into the museum system and the art system. But there will always be a lot of artists that never reach that point, of course. The majority of them, I think, mm-hmm. won't. And, you know, thinking about feminism and its importance, I think, you know, what what it's really caused people to think about in the art world, and I think this is still true, is, you know, to really think about what are those structures in the art world, um, that art is an objective, that we need to think about who controls the decisions in museums and other institutions and collecting policies and that sort of thing. And that really hasn't gone away. Um, In terms of feminism, the term, uh, I mean, I've seen it come and go even just in the time that I've been working on this. So when I first started graduate school in 2002, when I got my master's, there was, uh, which I should say was at the Art Institute of Chicago. So I was mainly with artists more, and there were you know fewer art historians there. So I had artists in all my classes, and there was one artist out of all that I knew that called herself a feminist mm. and was willing to do that. Now with my students, I don't see them viewing it as a kind of bad word or as some of the Gorilla Girls um, stuff says the F word. Right. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that it really is a term that bothers a lot of people they're afraid to identify with. I've always um, chose to identify with it myself, and that's because my mom was part of the feminist movement. Um, she went to college in the 60s. She says, you know, the whole world changed while I was there. She went to Stanford and was the only woman in the physics department at that time, faculty or Mm. student. Mm. Um, She then supported my father through graduate school, was chased around the desk at the office. I mean, these were the things that I was told that I never, you know, it wasn't, you can't assume you can't assume that you're always going to have the same advantages as everybody else, that there's work that's been done. That, you know, just my mom was a part of that. So for me, it's so close generationally that she um, instilled that in me. And I think with my students now, there's more distance. Um, and so they haven't – they're not aware of feminism, but they're also not aware of the backlashes mm-hmm. against it. So they're kind of starting from scratch. And certainly I've seen that in my class. We're starting sort of at the beginning, reading some of the foundational texts, really for the women's movement more broadly, um, but also looking at uh, art historians like Linda Nochlin, who started looking at inequalities in the art world. And it's really interesting to see their responses have been quite positive. And they still see relevance to those issues in their own lives today. Mm. So I'm really curious. You know, the class has just started at the beginning of the semester, but I can't wait to see where it goes. Right. Uh, Katja Kowitz, uh, the, the F word, and you, you know, Gorilla Girls, you know, in, in jest, I assume call it the F word, the feminism. Um, mm-hmm. what, would you, have you seen a shift in reaction to that word? Um, we see, well, first of all, the people who come to see us, most of them are somewhat sympathetic to what we do. So we do have a self-selecting audience in a way, but we have been all over the world, and we see that there are so many incredible feminists, activists, artists, etc., who believe in these things. They, they base their life on it. You know, it may not be in their work, but their work is definitely informed by it, and they care about it, and they do activism in the world about it. So we see that being huge, and I think it is huge all over the world. But at the same time, we see that in, in Europe, in the States, the, world, the word has been demonized by the media, and a stereotype has grown up about, you know, this kind of angry, nasty, you know, uh, man-hating feminist that uh, makes it a little hard for some people who really haven't thought about it and studied it to identify with it. So we're always fighting that stereotype. I mean, every woman, there's so many stereotypes you you know, you have to live up to or live down. And, um, God, we even wrote a book about stereotypes. We got so into how female stereoty- how ubiquitous female stereotypes are and how many of them there are. And um, feminist is certainly one of them that we're all fighting to change the image and uh, 
grow the idea of what a feminist is. And also, men are feminists. So many men, Rachel, you were talking about being raised by a feminist. Well, many men have been raised by feminists also, and they have a completely different idea about it than, um, than men, you know, generations ago. Uh, Kath Kowitz, would, would you invite men into the group? It's guerrilla girls. I don't know. Would... That is such a good question, particularly for our time. So first of all, you know, over 55 um, women have uh, been members uh, or are members of the guerrilla girls, um, you know, uh, some for a few weeks, some for decades. Uh, we've always been small at any one time because you can't do the kind of work we do with a huge group. But we do work with men, of course, and we have lots of men have asked us if they can join, and lots of women too, of course. So here's the thing. It's so hard to explain this because we started so long ago. When we began in 1985, it was the most natural thing in the world to have an all-female group. And we've had trans members, but in general, we've all been biological females in some, some fashion. And um, it was just the most natural thing of the, in the world. But now we get asked all the time, I want to join, why can't I join? You know, we get asked it at our, our gigs frequently. We may get asked tomorrow, uh, you know, or the next day in Utah. And there is no real reason. You know, we always give a joke answer and we say, well, of course, as soon as we find a man who's willing to work long hours for no pay and no credit, we'll be happy to have men in the Gorilla Girls. <laughs> but that's kind of an easy joke. The truth is that we've just, there's always been someone in the group who's sort of blackballed the, the idea for various personal reasons, so we've never quite gone there. But I think we will. I think this will happen. I'd like to uh, take a look in sort of at uh, artists working today, maybe some young women artists. Uh, Rachel Middleman, you were talking about some, you know, you're curious about what your students are, are thinking. What about uh, artists working today, particularly feminist artists? Is, is, is it still relevant? And what are, what are some interesting things they're doing? I think, well, of course, I think it's still relevant. Absolutely. Um, you know, an interesting that's, thing that's happened recently is that feminist art and particularly the feminist art movement, has started to be really recognized in contemporary art history um, as a, a movement and a very influential movement. Um, so we've had some big survey exhibitions of feminist art, um, as well as uh, survey books and that sort of thing. And this just came to me when um, you guys were talking, because the issue of inclusion and exclusion, of course, has been a big one for, for feminist art and mostly trying to, to fight for inclusion of women. Once you get to the point where you're having big exhibitions at museums, you still have that issue of who gets to be in those exhibitions um, and who is excluded. Uh, and the issue of men also came up with some of those. Well, could, should we let male artists in this show if it's a feminist art show, if their work is about feminism? And um, to my knowledge, they were not included in the end. Um, and, of course, you have to make decisions because there's only so much space. Um, but uh, including these more historical exhibitions or in addition to them, there have been some others to focus on more recent artists. Um, and I was thinking about one um, – I think it was 2007, called Global Feminisms, which also attempted not, not just to look at a younger generation, but also to look globally. Um, and that, of course, brings in a whole bunch of other issues because, you know, they, looking at different cultures, they have different cultural references, they have different um, expectations of gender roles, different politics, all of that. So, Finding ways of incorporating, I think, not just younger artists, but also artists from all over the world is one of the bigger challenges right now. As far as my own students, um, I have one student who definitely identifies herself as a feminist. And what I've learned from hearing her talk about her work and going through the process of um, advising her that her experience is is really different. And in a lot of ways, uh, she's dealing with some of the issues that um, the first generation feminist artists were dealing with in the 70s. And so, you know, we often think of history as having this real chronological narrative that we can make sense of. But sometimes I see feminism happening in different ways, you know, at the same time, but it's almost like we're in different times. Mm -hmm. 
So um, it's been interesting, you know, at trying to advise her and on where to go with her work and how she can still be in conversation with what is more cutting edge, I guess, in the broader feminist discourse versus the issues that she's still dealing with, um, you know, women's roles as housewife and those kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. Katja Kolwitz, a similar question to you. What are, what are you seeing out there that's interesting, that's uh, giving you hope for the future of, of the art world? Do, do we have you with us? Looks like we'll we'll try to reestablish the the line. Uh, sounds like we we may have lost uh, Kat Kolwitz. Um, so l- let me have you uh, talk, uh, Rachel Middleman, about uh, a, an exhibition uh, here on the USU campus, Female Plus Form. What is this? Yes, this is an exhibition that's up right now at the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art, which features work made by women artists from the permanent collection of the museum. So because the Gorilla Girls were coming. Um, I talked to the curator, uh, Deb Banerjee. Unfortunately, she's left. But um, over the summer, she put together this exhibition. She had been wanting to do it for a while. She's actually a feminist artist herself. Um, And the idea was, well, let's see what would happen if we went through the collection and we pulled work by women. This is all work from about mid-century to the present. And see how it fits together and how it works. Now, the intention was not to say well, this is work by women artists, it looks like work by women artists, or it's somehow different from male artists, or we are, we're going to categorize all these artists together. It was really to raise the question of uh, availability um, to the public of their work. Um, the women's only exhibition as a kind of strategy for starting to equalize things in the art world is something that has also always been controversial, even in the feminist art movement. Um, that kind of separatist approach. Uh, but it was thought to be important just for the fact that it would give women more exposure, give their art more exposure. So we put up this exhibition. It includes work that is um, definitely feminist, overtly feminist, uh, includes artists who identify themselves that way. It also includes artists who did not. Um, and what's interesting is Some of the artists who did not see themselves that way created abstract art, and some who did see themselves as feminists also created abstract art. So I think when you see it all together, it really makes you think about um, those questions about what are the purposes of a women's exhibition, what does it mean to be a feminist. You can be a feminist but not make feminist art. Um, Mm. And the the more recent work in the show is a lot of photography, it's mostly West Coast artists. Um, okay. So anyway, so the the exhibition is up, and it's up for us to look and think about these questions. And I had tried to get them to give me statistics on how many women artists are in the collection, um, but unfortunately I wasn't able to get those statistics mm-hmm. yet. Right. Uh, do we have uh, Katja Kolwitz back with yes, us? Yes, I'm back. I don't know what yeah. happened. Yeah, Sorry, so something, it cut off. Something strange. I wonder, uh, looking at superlatives, what, what project do you feel has been your most successful in regards to, to reaction and response? Is there something that comes to mind? Yeah, I think there are a few. I mean, one is definitely the the poster that Rachel talked about, Do Women Have to Be Naked to Get into the Met Museum? And it's kind of the perfect case of what we try to do. Um, that poster, you, you know, like... That poster is about the fact that muse- that women's bodies are in the museums, but not them as authors of the work. But we had a way of twisting it around that makes it kind of unforgettable to an awful lot of people if you see it. So that's one. Another one, uh, another couple of things are our film, our posters about uh, the film industry in Hollywood. So we do these big billboards right across from the, you know, like a mile away from where the Oscars are held. And our very first one we did in 2002, and it's it's called the anatomically correct Oscar. He's white and male, just like the guys who win. And then it has statistics. I mean, the Oscar statistics are unbelievable. At that time, no woman had ever won an Oscar for directing. Um, no African American or no person of color of any kind had ever won a writing award. And um, only a, a couple of artists of color, a few, like five or something in 100 years, 75 years, had won awards for acting. And that kind of thing is kind of great. It's on the street. We love being on the street best. 
That's fantastic. We also did a street project about hate speech against women in Montreal that we're now doing all over the world. It's going to be in Spain shortly. Um, you know, it's been other places. And that's been really exciting for us. Um, we did a kind of performance thing with it. We collected a bunch of really nasty things about women that great male minds have said over the centuries and made a poster that looks like a graffiti wall, which lists some of these, some of these crazy, um, crazy quotations. And, uh, and that turned out to be... I don't know, that was just great to see on the street. It was a whole, you know, it, it really struck us that you can still say things in public about women, really nasty things that you could never say in public today about any other group. Like, um, woman is defective and misbegotten, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, or some of the, some of our lovely, uh, right-wingers, you know, feminist was feminism was established so that unattractive women could, give e could have easier access to the mainstream of society, or, you know, the feminist, Pat Robertson, that was Rush Limbaugh, Pat Robertson, the feminist agenda is not about equal rights for women, it's a socialist anti-family movement that encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. And, of course, there's Frank Sinatra, a well-balanced girl, is the one who has an empty head and a full sweater. Hmm. So that was one of our favorites, too. That's um, much more recent, the last few years. We'll, uh, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, the uh, Gorilla Girls are coming to Utah. Gorilla Girls, a, a group of anonymous females, take the names of dead women artists as pseudonyms. They appear in public wearing gorilla masks. Founded in New York City in 1985, they published uh, books, spoken at lectures all over the world. Uh, they uh, aim to expose sexism and racism in politics, the art world, film, and culture at large. The uh, first event is tomorrow afternoon, 5 p.m., on the USU campus in the Performance Hall. Then they go to Weber State University at Lindquist Lecture Hall, 7 p.m. That's on Wednesday, and a sold-out performance at uh, Utah Museum of Fine Arts, uh, 5 p.m., uh, on Thursday, all events are free and open to the public. We've been talking to the member of the Gorilla Girls who goes by the name uh, Kata Kolwitz. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Tom, thank you. And Rachel, I can't wait to meet you in person. I can't wait to see your performance. Great. And uh, Rachel Middleman, uh, assistant professor in the uh, Kane College of the Arts, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And uh, tomorrow we'll, uh, we'll we'll keep it in the in the art world. Photography, a, a famous exhibit in the nineteen fifties. Ansel Adams and Dorothea Lange went to Southern Utah and uh, produced a piece for Life magazine. They called it Three Mormon Towns. Mark Hedengren has updated that and, uh, and gives us uh, some background on very interesting history. Uh, so we'll have Mark Hedengren in uh, studio, and perhaps also photographer Mary Ellen Mark. Uh, that is tomorrow on the program. For producer Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches.